And we've been talking for the last, uh, I don't know, a long time, since the summer probably anyway, we've been doing uh, spiritual disciplines. And uh, for the last number of weeks we've been on uh, praise and worship, and we're on praise and worship tonight. And last week we... Um, we went through those um, eight Hebrew words for praise, and I'll just tell them to you again tonight. The first one is halal. It's where we get the word hallelujah from. It means to be clear, to shine, to boast, to show, to rave. Even Christians can rave, apparently. To celebrate or to be clamorously foolish. The word yada means to throw out the hand, to worship with extended hands. And, you know, we look through these sometimes and people wonder, you know, why do we lift our hands and worship? Well, it's scriptural. The Bible says that we're supposed to praise the Lord. And this word yada means to throw out the hand, to worship with extended hands. And then there's the word toda, and toda comes from the word yada. And it means an extension of the hands in adoration. But um, where it's actually used is uh, thanking God for things not yet received. In other words, it's thanking God for something that um, you believe that he's done for you, although you haven't seen the manifestation of it yet. Um, you hear this one sometimes, ruah. It means to split the ears with a shout or to make a joyful noise. And this is uh, my favorite one, you know, because when you go through these, um, you know, you find your different places. People are able to worship God in different ways. But I'm not very musical, so I use this one here. I make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Or even if you can't make a joyful noise, you can at least make a noise joyfully. Amen. Um, the next word is the word shabak, and it means to shout or to address in a loud tone, to command or to triumph. Barak means to kneel down, to bless God as an act of adoration. Zamar means to pluck the strings of an instrument, to sing and to praise and to make music, accompanied by the voice, and so to celebrate in song and music. And then the, the one Tehillah is derived from the word Halal, and it means the singing of Halals, to sing or to laud, perceived to involve music, especially singing hymns of the Spirit or singing in the Spirit. And you hear people sometimes singing in the Spirit or singing in tongues, and that's the word Tehillah. But um, praise actually is a weapon. I'm going to talk about this for a few minutes tonight. Praise is a weapon. Um, it's a weapon against the enemy. And one of the reasons for that, and, and you know, when we think about who Lucifer was, and there's very little that we know about him in his previous life before he became known as the devil. He was known as Lucifer when he was in heaven. He was one of the three guardian angels in heaven. And um, one of the things that it talks about him in the book of Ezekiel chapter 28, it says that, that uh, pipes and tablets were part of his makeup. And pipes are wind instruments and tablets are percussion instruments. And people derive from that that he was probably the praise and worship leader in heaven. It might be a bit of a stretch, but people uh, take that meaning from it. Uh, but um, one thing that we do know is that Satan tried to, or Lucifer tried to usurp God's position. He wanted the praise for himself and God put him out of heaven. He was cast to the earth. And whenever we praise God, uh, Satan hates it can't stand to be in a place where the name of God is praised and exalted and lifted up because he wanted the praise for himself. Amen. And so Satan hates praise. And, it, and sometimes we can use praise for spiritual warfare, as I said, and we're going to talk about this. But we don't um, sing and praise just for the sake of it. But we should sense when we enter into a, a place of praise and worship, we should sense the Holy Spirit and the anointing of God coming down. And whenever the anointing comes down, the enemy has to leave. And if you look with me here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and this is the story of um, King Saul, actually. And King Saul, when, when God called him first, or when God allowed him, I need to say allowed because God didn't call him, but God allowed him to be king. 
And God prophesied over him and told Saul that he was going to deliver the children of Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. But, you know, he never showed up for the battle. And because he never showed up for the battle, he never won the victory. And we see several times with King Saul that God asked him to do things and he done the exact opposite of what God said. God told him to, to wipe out all the Amalekites. And God says to wipe out every man, every woman, every child, to wipe out um, all the sheep and all the oxen and everything that pertained to them, and he didn't do it. He kept some of the people alive, and he kept the best of the sheep and the goats alive. And then when Samuel challenged him on it, he said, well, the reason for that was, you know, I wanted to give him as a sacrifice to God. And that wasn't true. He just wanted him for himself. But um, he was disobedient. Because he was disobedient... um, God told Samuel to go and anoint David as king. He says, because I have rejected uh, Saul as king. And look at what happened here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Look with me here in verse uh, 14. It says, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Why did the spirit of God depart from Saul? And the reason why the spirit of God departed from Saul was because um, he wouldn't do the will of God. God gave him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do the will of God, and he didn't do it. Now let me just say something about that. This is Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came on people. And because the Spirit of God came on people, there was times when the Spirit of God left people. But in the New Testament, that doesn't happen, because Jesus said that when he went, that the Holy Spirit would come and he would be in us. The Bible says that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. We are in a completely different covenant, a completely different dispensation than they were in the Old Testament. you understand? So when the Spirit of God left him, that was an Old Testament thing, because they didn't have the Spirit of God on the inside of them like we do. And God says that he will never leave us and never forsake us. In actual fact, it tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14 that we are sealed with the deposit of the Holy Spirit until the day of our redemption. So we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Amen. But so this is different. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now watch what it says. It says, an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. When you go back and you read in the, in the Hebrew, some of the verbs Um, we talked about they can be translated different ways. They can be translated as active or passive. And nobody knows the right way. You're supposed to get it from the context. And we hear some of these Hebrew scholars, and they don't even know which way it should be active or passive. But what happened was, whenever the Spirit of God left him, an evil spirit came and troubled him. The reason why the evil spirit came and troubled him was because he wasn't under the protection of God anymore. Because he didn't have that protection, he had stepped out from under God's protection. He was fair game for the enemy. Okay, So the Spirit wasn't sent by God per se, but just by virtue of the fact that God left him, um, it left a door open for the enemy to come in. Do you understand? But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said unto him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp. And it shall come to pass, when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to me. Then answered one of the servants, and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is cunning in playing, and a mighty valiant man, a man of war, and prudent in matters, a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse, and said, Send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. And Jesse took an ass, laden with bread and a bottle of wine and a kid, and sent them by David his son unto Saul. And David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. 
And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. A couple of things I want you to notice here, firstly. Well, the first thing that we notice is that whenever David entered into praise and worship, whenever he began to worship God, it says the evil spirit left. But I want you to notice something here. Just when we were talking about this evil spirit wasn't from God, because firstly it calls him an evil spirit, and only good and perfect gifts comes down from God. And the second thing is, God wouldn't leave if he was being praised and worshipped, because the Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. So we know this wasn't sent by God, okay? It's just whatever way the Hebrew is translated here. But I want you to notice something here. This evil spirit came upon Saul, and whenever the evil spirit came upon Saul, what did Saul do? He found somebody who knew how to praise and how to worship God. And when he got into that arena where praise and worship was going up before the throne, the devil goes, I'm off. <laughs> I can't stand that. I'm, I'm leaving. You understand? But one thing that we need to understand is that whenever you get to a place like that, and you know, um, I remember hearing an expression years ago, and people used to talk about whenever you get depressed... Try praise. And I understand what they're saying, but we don't, we don't try praise. Because what happens when you try praise is, uh, I'll give this a go for a minute, you sing a chorus of a verse, that's not really working that well, I don't feel that great, so I'm just going to pack it in, I'll give up. <laughs> but you're not supposed to try it, you're supposed to enter in, aren't you? The Bible says enter into praise. And let me show you an example of that actually. If you look with me in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 16, I'm going to remind you of Isaiah 61 and verse 3. It says, To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. Um, and the scripture here says that God gives us a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. In other words, whenever a heavy spirit comes upon you, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to put on praise like a garment. Does that sound like trying praise? That's not trying praise, is it? He says, put on praise as a garment. He gives us praise as a garment for that spirit of heaviness because whenever um, we get into a place of praise, the spirit of God comes down. God inhabits the praises of his people and that enemy has to leave. That fear, that depression, everything that comes against us have, has to leave. Amen. Um, if you look with me here in Acts chapter 16, and um, this is the story of Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas had been imprisoned for preaching the gospel, basically, had cast out a devil out of a girl and so on. But, but it says that they, um, the men laid hands on them and put them in prison after they had beaten them. And they beat them with many stripes. And it says they put them in the inner dungeon and they had them bound and chained. But watch what it says here in verse 25. And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awaked out of his sleep. And seeing the prison's doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And then he called for a light and sprang in, came trembling and fell before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And here's um, Paul and Silas. 
And Paul and Silas had been doing the work of God, as we said. They had been out um, on their missionary journey, and they had cast the devil out of this girl, and they laid hands on them and, and beat them. The Bible says that their backs were all torn, and they were chained, and they were in the inner dungeon. But the scripture says at midnight that they prayed and they sang praises. And you know what's interesting about that? I wonder how much they felt like praying. I wonder how much they felt like praising. And I can guarantee you they probably felt like neither. And I love what, what Dave said on, um, on uh, Sunday morning. And I'm going to use it in a different context. But Dave said on Sunday morning, there's only two times you shook out the church. He said, when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. So I'm not what's left. And there's only two times that we should praise God. It's when we feel like it and when we don't feel like it. These guys didn't feel like it. But they entered into praise. I wonder if they tried praise. I wonder if they said, we'll just sing a chorus and see what happens. Or do you think they just entered in with gusto? I think they entered in with gusto. Do you know how I know? It says, because all the prisoners heard them. So this, this wasn't just a quiet thing done in a corner. They began to praise God. And as soon as they began to praise God, the Bible says that their chains fell off and the prison doors were opened. And there was an earthquake, actually, and then the, the chains fell off and the doors were opened. And so much so that the keeper of the prison actually thought that, that everyone had escaped. And he was about to commit suicide. And the reason he was about to do that was because he was responsible for them and they would take his life anyway if they had escaped. But Paul and Silas um, stayed there. And so one of the things that we need to understand is we need to persevere in praise until the power of God breaks through. Sometimes we just need to enter into that place of praise. And let me just say this to you. A lot of times you see from people that they don't understand the power of praise. And you know by their countenance, or you know by how they act when praise is going on. And whenever praise is going on, you see people who are entering in, and you see people sometimes in the tears just streaming down their face, or they're on their knees before God in the presence of God. And you see other people, and they're standing with the backs, and their hands on the back of the chair in front of them. And, and we need to understand, if we can get ourselves into that place of praise, that whatever it is that's distracting us, whatever it is that's holding us up, that God will deal with it. Amen. Amen. And so we need to enter into a place of praise. This is not something that we, you know, we just don't just come here to um, sing a few songs. You know, what time is the sermon starting at? What are we going to do till then? I don't know, we'll sing a few songs. <laughs> that's not what it's about. What we're doing is we're bringing down the presence of God. God inhabits the praises of his people and it opens our hearts to, in, a, in a way that we can hear from heaven. Amen. And this kind of praise that these guys were doing, because everyone in the prison heard them, this is not just spoken quietly in our hearts. Rather, this kind of praise needs to be heard. This kind of praise needs to be heard. Who needs to hear it? Well, the enemy needs to hear it for a start. And we need to hear it ourselves because it's only when we sing it out that we can actually hear it with our own ears. Amen. I want to talk about worship then for a few minutes. And what is worship? And worship um, actually comes from an old English, or our English word worship comes from an old English word called worship. Worship. And that's to give God his worth. Or to ask yourself, what is God worth? What, what is it that he's done for you? What is it worth? Do you understand? It's worship. Or to give God his worth. Um, or what is God worth to you? Look with me in the book of Revelation, chapter 4. Revelation, chapter 4. We also get the word worthy from the word worship. And God is worthy of the praise. Amen. In Revelation, chapter 4, look with me here in verse 11. Listen to what John says. 
about Jesus here. He says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and they were created. And you know when he's saying this here, um, he's got a heart of worship towards God. He begins to worship God. Lord, you, are, you alone are worthy to receive the glory, to receive the honor and the power. For you created all things, and for your pleasure they are and they were created. Look over with me in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11. And this is what's happening in heaven. He says, I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders and the number of them were 10,000 times 10,000. And thousands of thousands. He's looking out over them here. He sees these myriads of angels. And he's trying to count them. And he says there's 10,000 ti- uh, times 10,000. And thousands of thousands. In other words, I haven't a clue, but I know there's lots of them. <laughs> Verse 12. Sing with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. And see, what they're doing here is they're worshipping God, or what they're doing is they're giving God his worth. They're giving God his due, what he's worth to them. Amen. This is our great God. This is the Lamb who was slain, uh, that he might bring us into a relationship with God and bring us to heaven. Amen. Look with me in um, Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Worship, and worship is always from the heart. And worship, what it talks about is, what's God worth to us? What's he worth to us? What's what he has done worth to us? Is he worthy to be praised tonight? Amen. Look with me in this passage of scripture here in Luke chapter 7 and we'll read from verse 37. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with them. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Behold a woman in the city which was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and she stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore which of them will love him the most. And Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou thou hast judged rightly. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time she came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head 
with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And you know, when we look at this story here, here's the story of this woman, and this woman had actually been a prostitute, and Jesus had forgiven her her sins. Jesus had actually healed her earlier, and when she found out she was in this Pharisee's house, she came, and she took this alabaster box of ointment. And this alabaster box of ointment, probably, um, well, we know that it was very expensive, but probably this was her uh, retirement fund. And she had this alabaster box of ointment that she would have kept for her retirement, basically, so that she would have something to live off of in her old age. But because Jesus had forgiven her her sins, because he had healed her, she got this alabaster box of ointment, and she came, and firstly, she, she got on her knees before Jesus in an attitude of worship. And she began to weep, and as she began to weep, she washed him, his feet with her tears, uh, dried them with her hair. And then once she had his feet washed and dried, she took that alabaster box and she put it on his head and she put it on his feet and anointed him. And this um, Pharisee, he turns to Jesus and he uh, well, firstly he says within himself, he says, this is not a prophet. Because if he was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman was touching him. And the funny thing was, he didn't say it out loud, he said it inwardly, but Jesus heard him anyway. He said, I have something to say to you. And he tells him this story about a, one, a guy who owed 500 pence and one who owed 50 pence. And he said if the creditor, uh, or the debtor rather, forgave them both, he says, which one would love him more? He said, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. And that's not entirely true. Because it's not necessarily the one who has been forgiven more, but it's the one who understands how much they've been forgiven. You understand? It's not that you've been forgiven more. It's that you understand how much you've been forgiven. It's that you understand who you are and who and where you would be without him. And you know, the reality of it is, every single one of us were lost and without hope. Every single one of us were heading towards a lost, Christless eternity. And it doesn't matter whether we committed little sins per se or big sins. All that mattered was we were lost. And Jesus Christ came one day and redeemed us back to himself. And Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much and he who has been forgiven little loves little in other words um, you understand how much people appreciate what has been given to them by the way they worship God and we should have hearts of worship our God is worthy every single one of us were heading for hell every single one of us were heading for a lost eternity and if you could get a good revelation of that the Bible says he who has been forgiven much loves much and we have a great debt of gratitude that we owe our God. He is worthy to be praised. Amen. Hallelujah. Could have got a better amen than that, but anyway. The Hebrew words for worship are sagad and uh, shaka. And these, both of these actually mean to bow, bow down or to prostrate yourself, to be lowly and to be submissive. Both of these words, they mean to prostrate yourself, to lay down or to bow down, to be lowly or to be submissive. They also carry another idea, and I, I hate this idea per se because I hate putting them in the same sentence, but they carry the idea of how a dog responds to his master. Whenever a master goes somewhere, and the dog goes everywhere with him, and as the master is walking, the dog is licking at his hand and stuff, and it carries that whole idea of how the dog adores his master. He would do anything for his master. That's why he's called his best friend. And it carries that whole idea with it. In actual fact, when we look at the Greek word, the Greek word uh, for worship is uh, proskuneo. 
And the, the word proskuneo means to bow down and kiss the face. To bow down and kiss the face. Pros is face from prosopon and kuneo means to kiss. And it means to bow down and kiss the face of somebody. That's the, the Greek word for worship. In other words, when we get a real revelation of what it is that God has done for us, that we want to spend time in his presence and we want to bow down and kiss the face of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Hallelujah. Worship also then has the implied meaning of selfless adoration of a greater being. When we think about Jesus, Jesus gave us, or he shed his blood for us in order to give us the privilege of worshipping the Father. Jesus shed his blood for us in order to give us the privilege of worshipping the Father. And like we said earlier, all of us sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Every one of us were heading for a lost eternity. But Jesus Christ came and gave his life. He paid the price so that we will be able to worship the Father again. Look with me in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to what he says here. I mean, this whole book of Hebrews is excellent, but these later chapters, chapter 9, chapter 10, just some amazing stuff in it. But let's read from verse 19. He says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now this is the book to the Hebrews. This was written to the Hebrews, and the Hebrews would have understood this a lot better. But back in the Old Testament times, um, they used to worship at the tabernacle. And part of that tabernacle was a place called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And he had to go in with the blood of a lamb, and he had to present that blood of the lamb before the mercy seat. But one of the things that he had to do, and the high priest had to wash himself seven times and anoint himself before he went in. He had to shed blood for his own sins and then bring the blood in before the holiest of all. And one of the things that happened with them was um, if he wasn't suitably cleansed himself um, when he went into the holy place, when he went into that holy of holies, he died. Because the scripture says that sin cannot be in the presence of God. And if his sin wasn't suitably atoned for, whenever he walked into the presence of God, he just died. And one of the things, and I've shared this with you before, but one of the things that the, the Jews used to do, or the priests used to do, was they used to tie a rope around the leg of the high priest, and they had bells sewn into the bottom of his garment. And whenever he walked around in the holy place, you could hear these bells ringing. But if ever you heard the, if the bells stopped ringing, they just yanked him out. <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> God didn't tell him to do that, but they had to do it because if he died, you understand. And so this was this was um, a thing um, greatly to be feared in a sense, because they were coming before the presence of a holy God, and if they came before the presence of a holy God in a way that was inappropriate, they just they were struck dead there and then. See, we don't have that concept per se today because of Jesus, and so. This high priest was afraid to go in. He could only go in once a year. He could only go after washing himself seven times. He could only go when he had sanctified himself, when he had shed blood for, on his behalf, and then on behalf of the people. But look at what Jesus said, in verse, or what it says about Jesus here. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Not alone can we go in, 
Like these high priests, when they went in, they went in with fear. He actually says that we can now go in boldly. He, we can go in with boldness. He says, because of the blood of Jesus. Amen. We have access to God. We don't have to run. We don't have to hide. We don't have to tie something around our foot in case God strikes us dead. We have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. And so Jesus has become our high priest for us. He's become our high priest. And because Jesus is our high priest, what he has done is he's declared every single one of us to be a priest unto God ourselves. Now this is interesting here, because in in the Old Testament, um, God chose priests. And the priests ministered on behalf of the people. And every time somebody wanted something, they had to go and find the priest, and the priest had to go to God for them. He had to bring the sacrifice, he had to bring the offering, and so on. But Jesus... When he entered into that holy place with the blood, he made every single one of us a priest. In other words, he gave us the ability to approach God on our own behalf. We don't have to look for somebody else to do it. We don't have to go and find a priest. We don't have to go and find different offerings and all that stuff. Jesus said he has made us priests unto our God. We can come boldly ourselves uh, before the throne of grace. Amen. Um, Look with me in um, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. Let's read from verse 5. He says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God, and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The scripture here says that he washed us firstly and cleansed us from our sins with his own blood, and then he declared us to be kings and priests unto God. And you know, the scripture talks about Jesus a little bit later. He calls him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, we're the kings that he is the king of. Because he said he made us to be kings. But then it also says that he made us priests unto our God. That means that we have the ability to go to God ourselves whenever we want. We don't have to go look for a man. We don't have to go at set times. We have the ability whenever we want to, to enter in by the holy, into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Because he has made us priests unto our God. Amen. Go back with me to First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Just back a few pages. Turn left. 1 Peter chapter 2. And look with me here in verse 9. Listen to what he says about us here. He says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that we should show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You know, the scripture says, firstly, that we are a chosen generation. We are a chosen generation. You know, the children of Israel, per se, just by the fact that they were born in Israel, were God's people. But you know, for each and every one of us, we have been handpicked and chosen by God. We are a chosen generation. God called every one of us specifically, and he called us by name. We are a chosen generation. But then he says, we are a royal priesthood. 
We are a royal priesthood. How do we get to be a royal priesthood? Well, he said that he has made us kings and priests unto our God. That's a royal priesthood, isn't it? Kings and priests. And he has made us kings and priests, a royal priesthood. And then he says we are a holy nation, a peculiar people. Tell somebody you're peculiar. No, don't do that. A peculiar people, that we should show forth the praises of him. And you know, the reason why he called us, the reason why he saved us, the reason why he has given us that position, the reason why we can come boldly before the throne of grace, it says, so that we should show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And he saved us for a purpose, and that purpose is so that we would know him, that we would worship him, that we would love him, that we would show forth his praises. Amen. And so when we come to worship God, firstly, worshiping God is an expression of us putting God first place in our lives. Worshiping God is an expression of putting God first place in your life. And you know what's interesting about that is, is whenever you worship something, what you do is you put their needs before your own, don't you? You put their needs before your own. And you see, that's why the Bible says that we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God. We're supposed to put God's needs before our own. He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to put on. He says, you just seek the kingdom. And when we truly understand what it is to worship God, what we do is we put his needs before our own. We worship him because of who he is. And everything we have comes from him anyway. Amen. So worship is an expression of putting God first place in our lives. We said earlier, um, worshiping God is not just a matter of singing songs. It's not about singing songs. And sometimes, you know, we can come in and we can sing songs. And sometimes when we do that, when we start off, we're cold, per se. We're just singing songs for the sake of it. But you know what? As we begin to enter in, what happens is our heart begins to change. And we get into that presence of God, into that sweet presence of God. And the presence of God starts to flow. And then before too long, you're lost in praise. And then you're in a place of worship. And I don't know if you've ever got to a place um, where... You know, you get into the presence of God and maybe the tears start to flow. But you get to a place where you're oblivious to everything else that's going on around you. In actual fact, you get to a place where it feels like you're the only person in the room except for Jesus. And you get to a place where you actually begin to think to yourself, if I open my eyes here, I will look straight into the face of Jesus. Have you ever been there? That's when you really get into a place of worship. That's when you really get into the presence of God. And when you actually feel, I I can't even open my eyes here because if I open my eyes, I'm going to be looking straight into the face of Jesus because it becomes that real, it becomes that close. But that's what the scripture says. He inhabits the praises of his people. In other words, when the worship begins to go up, that the praise begins to come down. And Dave said something the other day, and I can't remember the scripture reference for it, but Dave said something the other day. He said, I wonder if our praise is collected and I wonder if it's stored in heaven and the answer is yes it is because the scripture says that the praise comes out from under the throne of God in heaven when God is seated on the throne the praise comes out from under the throne it talks about it in the book of Revelation chapter 4 I think it is so worshipping God is not just a matter of singing songs in fact as disciples of Jesus everything we do should be out of a, a, a heart of worship to God amen um, true worship actually involves, uh, involves us giving 100% of our lives to him, being totally available and totally obedient to him. Worship of God is a lifestyle of bringing glory to God. And we need to understand something. Whenever um, we get to that place where we begin to understand the, how we're supposed to worship God, everything we say and everything we do should be bringing glory to him, should be an act of worship to him. Amen. Amen. 
Worship is, is what the Father is seeking. If you look with me in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And the Father seeks worship, the scripture says. We're going to read it here in John chapter 4. It says here in... um, Let's read from verse 3 just for a moment. It says that he left Judea and he departed again unto Galilee and he must needs go through Samaria. And the scripture here says he must needs go through Samaria. In other words, he had to go to Samaria. He had something to do in Samaria. He must needs go to Samaria. The interesting thing was, when you read the next chapter, all he did was he went down to Samaria, he met this woman and he came back again. So what this actually tells us was that he had set up a divine encounter with this woman. Do you know that God sets up divine encounters for us? He sets up divine encounters for us. He actually took and he, he took the twelve disciples with him, and he made them walk with him all the way to Samaria because he had to meet this woman, and then he walked them all the way back again. <laughs> Hallelujah! Um, look down with me in. Um, well, let's read from verse six. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which was midday. And there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy food. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest to drink of me, which I am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And that's because they were Gentiles. In actual, in actual fact, they were a mixed breed. They were Jews that had bread, inbred with the Gentiles, and they were Samaritans. Verse 10. And Jesus answering and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that asketh, or say to thee, give me a drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whoso drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus said unto her, Go and call thy husband, and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And he said to her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou hast is not thy husband, in that thou saidst truly. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now listen to what she says. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship you know not what, for we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so here Jesus is telling us firstly that the Father is seeking worship. But he's seeking a particular kind of worship. The word worship there is the word we said earlier, is proskuneo, and it means to bow down and kiss the face. 
And Jesus, uh, he says here that the Father is looking for worshippers, and he's looking for worship. And there's several interesting things that he mentions in this passage here. Um, the first thing he mentions is that we worship the Father. He says, the Father seeketh such. The Father is seeking worshippers. We worship the Father. Then he tells us that we worship from our spirits. He says, for those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Or we're supposed to worship from our spirits. You know what's interesting about that, firstly? And people have this concept, you know, about all these different religions and they're all worshipping God. And sometimes you even hear people saying that they're all worshipping the one God. But here God says, firstly, he says that we must worship him in spirit and in truth. The only way that you can worship God in, in spirit and in truth is you need to be born again in your spirit. Because if you're not born again in your spirit, you can't worship God in spirit, can you? You can't worship him in spirit if, you, um, if you're not born again. So we need to be born again of the Spirit if we're to worship God correctly and acceptably. Our worship of God should be Spirit-led and Spirit-inspired. Because the reality of it is, He's the only one who truly knows the way that we should worship Him, is the Spirit. The Spirit of God. And He leads us into all truth. Amen. And He leads us to worship Him in a way that's pleasing to the Father. And then He tells us here that we worship from our hearts. And worship is meant to be from your heart. It's not lip service, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Worship should not be mere lip service. Worship should always be from our hearts. Amen. And we worship God in truth, out of reality, out of a life lived in fellowship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son. And he tells us that we're supposed to worship him in spirit and in truth. And the word truth here is the word aletheia. Aletheia. And it means in reality. It means disclosed or not hidden. In other words, um, what he's talking about here is we need to worship God in reality. We need to open ourselves to him, nothing hidden before him. Amen. Hallelujah. Worship God in spirit and in truth. Um, our worship also should be heartfelt and not just with our mouths. Look with me in Matthew chapter 15 for a moment. Just a couple more scriptures and we'll finish. Keep your finger in John if you haven't already left it. But Matthew chapter 15. This is something we've got to be careful of here. Matthew chapter 15, look with me in verse 8. He says, This people draws near unto me with their mouth, and honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he makes several um, interesting statements here because he says here, firstly, that people draw near with their mouths. They honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from him. And so what he's telling us, firstly, here is it's not just enough to worship God with our mouth and with our lips. Because you hear a lot of people and they'll say all manner of things about how much they love God and all the rest of it, but it's not coming from their heart. Maybe because they're not born again or whatever. But he says they're, they're worshipping me with their mouth and with their lips. But their heart is actually far from me. And then he says in verse 9. He says in vain do they worship me. In vain do they worship me. See if you're honouring God with your lips and not your heart. He says your worship is in vain. It's in vain. Teaching for doctrines the commandment of men. And so our worship of God should be heartfelt. And not just with our mouths, not just lip service. Amen. 
We also need to express the melody of God in our hearts. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 here. Look with me in verse um, 19. It says here, Speaking to yourselves. How many of you speak to yourselves? Hmm? A few of you. <laughs> the Bible says here we're supposed to speak to ourselves. See, let me just say this to you. It's not wrong speaking to yourself. It's only wrong when you answer yourself back. <laughs> All right. He says, speaking to yourselves in psalms, in hymns, and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You see, that's a form of worship, isn't it? Speaking to yourself with psalms, with hymns, with spiritual songs, as you sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. You know, it was interesting, um, Dave said on Sunday morning, I just found it interesting, he says, have you ever um, started a song in the middle? He said, you start in the middle of a sentence. He said, you, you can't do that na- uh, naturally. And you know, we find it sometimes when you're even looking for words down there, or the guys are looking for a song, and they have to go back to the start, and they start singing from the start. And they get to the bit, and they go, yeah, that's it there. But you never really start from the middle. It's, it's very, very hard to do. But sometimes you find yourself singing a song, and you start in the middle. And as Dave was saying the other day, as he was sharing the other day, what it is is your heart has already been singing unto the Lord, and you just caught up with it. You just caught up with it. Just entered in at the right time. Amen. Singing and making melody in your hearts unto the Lord. The Bible also says that we should worship God with our understanding. Go back with me to John 4. If you've still got your finger there. And in John chapter 4 here and verse 22. Listen to what he says here. You worship, you know not what. We know what or who we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Now he makes an interesting statement here. He says, you worship, you know not what. Well, what did we say worship was? What was the definition we gave of worship a little bit earlier? Does anybody remember? You have to go back and start again. (laughs) Worship. It's when you recognize the worth of something. When you recognize what's, what, what God has done for you and everything he's done for you and everything he's given to you, that he's made us kings and priests unto his God, that he's washed us and cleansed us, that he's given us boldness and confidence where we can have access before the throne of grace. And it's out of that heart we begin to worship God. But he says, you're worshiping, you know not what. How could they be worshiping when the whole fact of worship is knowing? He says, you worship, you know not what, but we know who we worship. We know what God has done for us. We know the price that Jesus paid that we might have access to the Father. Amen. And so he says here we need to know who we worship. In other words, we need to know him personally. Amen. And then we worship from the will. We have to worship God with our will. We do not praise and worship him because we feel like it. See, this is something we need to understand as well. It's an act of our will. We don't praise and worship God because we feel like it or when we feel like it. We praise and worship God because he's worthy. And that never changes. Whether you feel like it or whether you don't feel like it, the fact that he's worthy never changes. And just as Dave has said, we talked about earlier, how many times do you worship God? Twice, he said, when you want to and when you don't want to. Which is all the time. Because God is always worthy. Amen. He's worthy of our prayers. He's worthy of our worship. Our God is a great God. He's done mighty things for us. And you know, um, we were only scratching the surface 
of what God has done for us. Even when we get out into eternity, we'll look back and we'll be able to go, wow, I didn't even realize it was as much as that. Didn't even realize, you know, the impact, Father, that you had in my life. I didn't really even realize. And the reality of it is we don't understand maybe even sometimes what God has redeemed us from. But one day we'll see clearly. And we'll understand clearly everything that Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen. And so... We talked about praise at the start, and we talked about praise is an act of warfare sometimes. And you've got to press into praise. You've got to press in until the Spirit of God comes. You've got to press in until um, whatever's going on in your life begins to change. It's not just a trying praise, it's an entering into praise. And then we need to, to come into a place of worship. When we begin to, to recognize everything that God has done to us and for us, and out of that we begin to realize the worth and the value of our God, everything that he's done for us, everything that he has provided for us, and everything that's waiting for us when we leave this scene of time. Amen. Let's just leave it there tonight. Let's stand to our feet and we'll close with a word of prayer and we'll take it up again next week.